Welcome to Tiski Sao, where tonight we are going to talk you through the flood of election results that are coming through from across the United Kingdom. To do so, I'm delighted to be joined by Aaron Bastani. Have you had an enjoyable day of, of poring over election results? Immensely satisfying, Michael. I was up till about five o'clock in the morning. I was waiting for my uh, wife to come back. She's a councillor here in, uh, in South Sea, on the South Coast. And then I woke up today, beautiful day, sun is shining, some fascinating things going on in in UK politics. And I should say, at the end of the show, we are going to be talking about the one new political story other than the elections today, which is the police opening an investigation into Keir Starmer. We're going to talk you through election results in each of the nations, but we'll start with England. These are the gains and losses with 135 of 143 councils having declared. The big losers are the Conservatives. They are down 301 councillors. Labour, modest gains. 47, and the big winners, the Lib Dems and the Greens. So the Lib Dems up 175 seats, the Greens up 57. So these are net, of course. So this is gains minus losses. And when it comes to councils, the Conservatives have net lost 10 councils. Labour have net won five. We're going to break down these results into London and the rest of England, because at least when it comes to Labour, it was a very different story inside and outside the capital. They won three councils, so the net was a win of two, and that was because they won three. Wandsworth, which has been Tory since 1978, Westminster, which has never ever been Labour, and Barnet. It's only net two because Labour lost Harrow. And while it was a good night for Labour in London, that wasn't really the case in the rest of England. So this is the results for England, excluding London, the Labour Party, they have gained net 15 seats. The Conservatives, excluding London, um, have lost 238 net again. So they've had a terrible day, both in London and outside of London. Great day for the Lib Dems and Greens. Um, let's look at the reactions from the big players. This was Boris Johnson's spin on the result. It's midterm and it's certainly a, a mixed set of results. And uh, we've had a tough night in some parts of the, of the country. But on the other hand, in other parts of the country, you're still seeing uh, conservatives going forward and, uh, and making uh, quite remarkable gains uh, in places that haven't voted conservative uh, for a long time, or if ever. And so leaving aside the commentary, the, the big lesson that I take from this is that this is a, a message from voters that what they want us to do above all, one, two, and three, is focus on the big issues that matter to them. It's very much a boilerplate response, if ever I've heard one. When it comes to Keir Starmer, as usual, he was more interested in contrasting himself to former Labour leaders than the actual Prime Minister. This is a massive turning point for the Labour Party. From the depths of 2019, we're back on track now for the general election, showing what the change that we've done, the hard change we've done in the last two years, what a difference it has made. And, you know, Cumberland, you know, very important uh, win last night in key constituencies for the next general election. Same in Southampton. Many more results to come today. But I just want to thank our brilliant team. Now we can show you polling guru John Curtis. He was on the BBC this morning and didn't exactly endorse Starmer's view that yesterday was a signal of Labour recovery. Um, Labour Party can certainly rightly claim to have done an awful lot better than they did last year. Their vote's up by about five or six points across England as a whole. But then we have to remember they did so, so badly last year. It was a really disappointing result for Labour. 
In, in London, the party certainly has made progress on what it achieved in 2018. It has done better and achieved a better result than anything that Jeremy Corbyn managed to do as leader. And insofar, perhaps, Turning Point is code for leaving behind the party's past. In London, arguably, that case can be made. The trouble is outside of London, Actually, the Labour's vote is a little bit lower than it was in 2018. It hasn't done quite as well as Jeremy Corbyn did. And that's not only true of the votes, but actually so far at least, Labour has uh, made a slight net loss of seats outside of London. Now, Labour needs to do well in London to win an election, but doing well in London will not be sufficient. And certainly there is very little sign of the Labour Party making particular progress in some of those leave-inclined places, traditional Labour places in the north of England and the Midlands. Uh, and that certainly is the target that Labour has long been setting itself. Its target has not been to make to paint London even more red than it is already. It has been to try to reclaim the ground that it has been losing further north. Aaron, I want your overall analysis of the English results, in particular relating to, to Labour and the Conservatives. It's really important to say, Michael, Journalists in London love to make local elections about national politics because it makes them feel more significant and it puts them in charge and it means they have a direct line to the people that matter. And often in local elections, that simply isn't the case. Uh, and so we see a really complex, mixed picture across the country. So the Tories outside of the south of England actually didn't do too poorly. You know, I think compared to 2018, they saw their vote share fall by between 0.5 and 3% on, on, the, on the region. In the South, their vote share fell by about 7%. Labour, like you say, again, quite a mixed picture, but they can point to places like Southampton, Cumberland, Wandsworth, Derby, they made some gains. So that's quite a mixed picture. My personal sort of immediate take is, look at the big takeaways here. 35% of the national vote, same as in 2018. We are meant to be in a, in, in a unique set of circumstances for the Tories. We are meant to be subject to a, a Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, whose personal approval ratings are as bad as Jeremy Corbyn's at his worst. He is the first Prime Minister ever to be, you know, investigated and charged by uh, the police. We had Owen Paterson. We've got the cost of living crisis. We've got a recession heading our way. We've got so much to talk about tonight, we can't even talk about the Bank of England yesterday saying that 0% growth for 2023 is very likely and that inflation will go beyond 10%. Obviously, energy bills are skyrocketing. Food inflation set to hit 10%. So in spite of all of that, Keir Starmer more or less couldn't do any better than Jeremy Corbyn in 2018. Now, 2018 was Jeremy Corbyn's high point. And it is also fair to say that given what happened in 2019, and particularly last year, this does clearly represent a significant recovery. In no way, however, does it suggest that Labour are going to be the largest party, let alone form a, a, a majority government. And I, I finish with this. I would challenge anybody to say when they were canvassing yesterday, they found people eager to vote for Labour on the basis of Keir Starmer. He's not infusing anybody. What I think he probably has achieved in some places, I mentioned Derby, seats like that, is that he's probably neutralising the kinds of attack lines that you saw against Jeremy Corbyn, particularly after 2018, 2019, and both the, the local European and national elections. They were very effective. He's probably neutralised those a little bit. But I, you know, I, I would ask those people in, in return who are supporters of Keir Summer, is that enough to win a general election? I don't think so. Fascinating election. And I think in particular, having the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, both arguably to Labour's left right now, it is a new phenomenon. The idea that you have two parties doing that while you have the disintegration of the Tory vote and Labour not really going anywhere, that is a new development. 
And you have to compare it really to the pre-2016 context where the third party was UKIP, uh, the third party on the rise. And so as a progressive, as a socialist, that suggests to me quite positive long-term trends. We're going to talk um, about the Greens and the Lib Dems in a bit more detail in, in a moment. And we are going to be talking about you know, what these elections imply for a national picture. First of all, I think it is worth dwelling. Wandsworth, Westminster, Barnet. I know more about Wandsworth than I do about any of the other Labour groups there. But sort of how significant is that going to be for the politics of London, for the politics in those boroughs, that those seats, especially in the case of Wandsworth and, and Westminster, for the first time in a very long time, are no longer Tory held and are controlled by Labour? That's a huge, hugely significant story. Of course it is. I would say, though, we should hesitate on our conclusions around London because the Tories have just won Harrow from Labour and Lutva Rahman is now the, the mayor of Tower Hamlets. Bethnal Green and, and Bow and around there in, in East London. And of course, we've still got Croydon to come in. So it's not an, an alloy, unalloyed picture of successful Labour in, in the capital. But like you say, Wandsworth, Westminster, Barnet, these are big wins. Wandsworth, they were so close in 2018. So in a way, I don't really see that as a, as a major shift. You know, I've seen some data which suggests that less than 500 votes was in it across the various wards and Labour could have won that, could have won that borough in 2018. Westminster, I think, was a bit more significant and a, a, a bit less expected. Twin or three is really massive. I think there's two ways to look at this. Firstly, what are the implications in a general election of the fact that Labour have won Wandsworth? I would argue zero, negligible, nothing. Why? Who are the MPs in, in this part of the capital? You've got Tooting uh, with Rosina Allen Khan. Uh, you've got Battersea with Marsha de Cordova. Uh, and then you've got uh, Putney. With Fleur, maybe you, Fleur Anderson, I think you can probably remember her name better than I can. She was elected in 2019, Michael. So these aren't seats that Labour are going to pick up in the next general election. So in that respect, Wandsworth isn't that big a deal. Similar-ish with Westminster. You've got a Tory MP down there. I think you have um, in Westminster North, Karen Buck, you have a Labour MP, I think. So similar-ish kind of vibe. However, having in the capital city just an overwhelming panoply of, of, of Labour councils who can now bottom line an action really, you know, high level stuff when it comes to low traffic neighbourhoods, when it comes to the climate agenda, hopefully when it comes to housing. I think that's really, really exciting from the perspective of municipal local politics. But, but in terms of the implications for a national general election, I mean, Labour winning Wandsworth doesn't mean anything at all. Sorry to be a party pooper, although I'm in incredibly excited about the agenda that Wandsworth Council can, can deliver as a Labour Council. Let's look at these vote shares across the different regions, because this is where I think it's really difficult to say this was a good night for the Labour Party. In London, they have gained 1.8 percentage points when it comes to vote share, but everywhere else, they've lost. They've lost vote share. Obviously, the worst story here is for the Conservatives, down 7.1% in the South and down in, in every region in the UK. But Keir Starmer has sort of suggested that his strategy to, to win a general election is, is to win back places outside of London, to win back the so-called red wall seats. And they've gone backwards everywhere from 2018. Remember, that was under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. This was supposed to be the guy who would win back the places lost by Corbyn. And he's going backwards to every other region outside of London. Aaron, are you sort of surprised to the extent to which that hasn't been a dominant narrative in the media today? Looking at that graph just seems to me this was not a good night for the Labour Party. Well, Michael, I mean, it's uh, the, 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 the truth is a very fickle beast when it comes to media. You know, it's quite funny. Yesterday, I saw a, a, t a tweet with media responses to Labour's results in 2018, you know, poo-pooing it, 
saying how poorly Labour had done various newspapers. And then, of course, you know, you have David Lammy on the BBC last night. I was watching the coverage. You wisely went to bed at about one, two o'clock in the morning. He said, well, of course, these were great results for Labour in 2018. So that's the context. And I said, oh, what the? There's a Labour MP saying that 2018, and not a Labour MP from the left, by the way, saying that 2018 were good results for Labour, which is partly true. You know, that they were good results. You could argue there's something of a ceiling on them. I would push back slightly, Michael. I would say that you can look at certain seats, Worthing, Southampton, arguably Hastings, uh, where, where Labour have made progress. And, and you can look at this and say, okay, I can see 10, 15, 20 MPs. The only problem though is, and this is represented in the data you just pointed to, is that there are almost as many places where they've, they've fallen back. There are three Labour MPs in Hull, Michael. They lost the council last night. There are three Labour MPs in Hull. This is exactly the kind of place where apparently Corbyn was so toxic. And, and let's be frank, you know, his personal political brand was shredded by the media. And yes, that, that had the biggest overhead in places like Hull, leave voting places, quote unquote, Labour heartlands. But they just lost the council there. They lost councillors in, um, in Oldham. They lost councillors in Nuneaton. They're losing councillors in bits of the West Midlands. They've lost a few councillors in Birmingham to, to the Lib Dems. Equally, they picked up a little bit in Dudley. So it is, a, it is a, a mixed picture. I think given the expectations, look, Michael, we were talking about this, what, a month ago? Things moved so quickly. Boris Johnson was going to be toast after these elections. He was going to have to resign. Well, that ain't going to happen. You know, he's absolutely survived these. I think the Tories nationally have lost maybe 400 councillors, but they've been in for 12 years. And they've been enmeshed in scandals nonstop for, for six months. So I think for them, that's, that's actually pretty good going. And like I said earlier, those losses are overwhelmingly from, from the south of England. I think you take away a few good news stories for Labour, and yes, it's a very bad night in, in England, outside London in particular. Not positive. And to be fair, Michael, I criticise the media, but I, you are beginning to see some accounts now of, you know, Keir Starmer doesn't really have what it takes. And his, his genre, his brand of politics, it doesn't really work in these places. You know, the Lib Dems are making gains in places like Sunderland, right? And the whole point of, of Labour now was we need to get these leave voting places and tell them we're not, you know, remain liberal Londoners. Well, the Lib Dems, the definition of that, and they're picking up, you know, council wards in Sunderland. So yes, very poor for Labour. I think very poor on their right and their left. I think they should have taken more off the Tories and they've lost a great number of votes to the Lib Dems and the Greens. Let's move to the smaller parties. Again, we're staying, we're keeping our analysis in England and the Lib Dems had a great night getting 175 seats and overall control of free councils. This is how their leader, Ed Davey, explained their success. We have done really well across the country. I'm here in Somerset where we've taken control of the council. Uh, and when I... Uh, I, I, I canvassed across the country, met lots of people, and the biggest issue across the country was the cost of living emergency. You know, millions of families and pensioners are really struggling, and the Conservative government was not doing anything near enough to help those people. And Liberal Democrats were saying, look, you've got to give them a tax cut, a, a cut in VAT worth £600 to the average family. That's the sort of positive measure that the Liberal Democrats were arguing for. Uh, and I'm afraid the Conservatives were just taking people for granted. That's what we heard. The Greens also made gains with 57 councillors winning seats or gaining seats. This is their co-chair, Adrian Ramsey. So you don't think it's a protest vote against Boris Johnson? I think there is real frustration with what we've seen from the government, but people need a positive reason to vote for an alternative as well. And look, I, I think that the Conservative Party have got more than enough reason to 
think long and hard about how they're going about governing the country and about how they're failing to uphold standards in public life. But people vote positively as well. And where we have seen Greens win across the country, it has been because of the positive message we've put across locally and also growing concern and awareness that we need to take urgent action both to address the climate emergency and to address the social inequalities and the cost of living crisis that people are facing. Apologies, I said 57 Greens councillors won seats. Of course, it was much more than that. They made 57 gains. So they have 57 councillors more than they did the last time these elections took place. Aaron, other than in European elections, the Corbyn years saw England basically return to two-party politics. Has that changed? I'm going to push back a bit against the premise of that question, Michael. I don't think that's entirely true. The Greens tripled their number of councillors before last night, tripled their number of councillors since 2018. So big progress was made by the Greens in 2018, 2019, and then, of course, last year. Maybe I'm being blinded by general elections, potentially. Well, yeah, maybe, but also, I mean, it's, they're starting from an, an incredibly small base. So, I mean, uh, you know, we're now talking about, oh, Greens now regularly, you know, keep their deposits, which is a big thing. It's a big deal to be contesting hundreds of wards and, and getting between 5 and 10%. You know, don't, don't mean to diminish that, but they weren't even doing that five years ago. So I think that's, that's one thing. The Greens are, are, are certainly on the move. I think the Liberal Democrats clearly, slowly but surely, are recovering from that sort of 2010 to 2000, really. 18, 19 crisis they had. I mean, that, that happened kind of fast forward in terms of 2019 local elections. They benefited so much from the quagmire of Brexit. That seems to be continuing. I mean, the, the Lib Dems are right now the primary beneficiaries of the Tory vote collapsing, particularly in the South. I mean, that just seems quite, quite obvious. And the sort of the pundit thinking is, well, when the Lib Dems do well, so do Labour. Well, except 2010, when the Lib Dems got their highest ever vote as a party and Labour fell out of government. But OK, we'll ignore that because they ignore the things that don't confirm their points of view. Well, look, if the Lib Dems, the net beneficiaries so far of the Tories losing seats in the South, that can work if Labour win back their seats in the Red Wall as a, as a, as a logic that can work. We're not seeing that, however. And what's more, the Lib Dems are also challenging Labour in some of those very same seats. I mentioned, you know, the Lib Dems picking up councillors in Sunderland and whatnot. So they're competitive there. Birmingham, so they're competitive there. I, I think you're right to say that we're moving away from the, the, the two parties. And as I said earlier, the insurgent here is not UKIP or the Brexit party, as it has been since 2010, which as a progressive is fantastic. And it's just such a relief. It's such an extraordinary relief that the entirety of the political conversation is not being set by Brexit. How good is that? We're talking about living standards. We're talking about conduct in public office. We're talking about squeeze wages and public services. <laughs> Crazy. You know, we should have been talking about this for years. It's been on animated suspension because of Brexit, which suited some people in the Liberal Democrats and suited very much so uh, people on the Tory right. But now we're squarely back on, on what matters to most people. So it's reanimated the, the Lib Dems on local issues. The Greens are benefiting. Many, many independents as well benefited from the Tories kind of collapsing. Where I live here, on the South Coast, independents were winning where, you know, Tories had previously been the incumbents. So we are definitely moving away from that. I think the sort of missing part of the, the jigsaw, Michael, is that there isn't an insurgent party on the right now trying to benefit from the Tories, which at the moment really benefits Boris Johnson, right? If Johnson was being squeezed from both sides, you know, he had a kind of Farage, right-wing party saying clamp down on immigration, and he was losing votes to the Lib Dems and to a far lesser extent to Labour in some places like Wandsworth, then I think they'd have real trouble. But actually, I, I'll be honest, I think, I, think, I think the Tories are sort of sitting pretty at the moment. 
not sitting pretty. They're not looking at the electoral cataclysm that was being predicted two, three months ago. But you're right. It's really positive. And we'll talk about this, of course, later. But you've got the Scottish Greens, I think, one a historic number of councillors. And then, of course, you've got Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. So the political composition of, of politics in the United Kingdom is much more varied and moving away from that single issue of Brexit, which I think has been deeply, deeply inhospitable terrain for, for socialists. I know you're saying the Conservatives didn't, didn't do as badly as some people were saying, but I mean, it is quite remarkable they've done this badly without any competition from the right. It, it, there wasn't a right flank trying to, to win over voters, and they've still lost an enormous vote share and, and an enormous number of, of councillors. Yeah, I, I think in the South, that's absolutely true. I think, I think they have major problems, and that's their base. You know, that's the equivalent of, of Labour's Red Wall. So I'm not saying they've got, that's a huge, that's the biggest problem they could possibly have. But outside the South, they're, they're, doing, they're doing okay. But of course, look, who, who's going to come in and, and, and retake those Southern seats for them? There's a big recomposition going on in British politics, both with Labour's quote-unquote red wall over the last several years. I think we're seeing something very similar in the South, and it's easy to say, oh, the blue wall. But, you know, uh, Labour and the Greens and the Lib Dems doing well in places like Worthing and Southampton and Hastings and in London. It's a big, big problem for the Tories going forward. I think we can move over to Scotland now. A big story in Scotland was Labour doing pretty well. And they made it into second place behind the SNP. And they made serious gains in terms of seats. And that's a significant victory for them, undoing the large lead that the Tories gained over them under Ruth Davidson. This is Labour's leader in Scotland, Anna Sawa. Look, this is a, a great day for the Scottish Labour Party. We've not had many of them in uh, recent years. We're, uh, of course, delighted to be what I believe will, in the end, be a strong second, both in terms of uh, vote share and seats. But I don't aspire for Labour to be in second place. I aspire for Labour to be in first place. So what we've seen is uh, the Tories return to being the nasty party. I think it's clear uh, that the Ruth Davidson project is dead. Uh, but I want us to take the focus now to the SNP about how we change our country, not pull it apart. Labour's gains came at the expense of the Tories who crashed dramatically, losing 62 seats in Edinburgh. They dropped from second to fifth place, losing half their seats and falling behind the Greens. The overall winner, though, was the SNP. They made gains on what was already a towering position. Their party increased their councillors by 22, ultimately ending up with a third of all available council seats. Nicola Sturgeon had some words for both the Tories and Labour. I'm thrilled. You know, the SNP has increased its share of the vote, increased the number of councillors. We are the largest party in more councils today than we were yesterday. Uh, we've won the election and we've won the election by a country mile. I think it's the eighth consecutive election win under my leadership of the SNP, all after 15 years in government. So it is a stupendous result for the SNP and sends the clearest possible message to Boris Johnson and the Tories. Labour say that they have a result in Glasgow, given their improvement. Labour are off the canvas in this election, do you think? Well, from what I uh, gather, uh, the SNP is still the largest party in Glasgow. We have, under the brilliant leadership of Susan Aitken, uh, retained the city of Glasgow with more seats and uh, more votes, uh, as I understand, in terms of the latest tally I've seen. And Labour threw the kitchen sink at Glasgow, and they have benefited hugely from the massive collapse in the Tory vote, and yet they still can't defeat the SNP. So I think there's some reflection perhaps needed uh, on Labour's behalf there. Look, I understand Labour will uh, see moving back into second place in Scotland as uh, a, a bright spot. They haven't had many of those in, in recent years, but they're still, you know, I think some, what, 12, 13 percentage points behind the SNP. 
To discuss the results in Scotland, I'm joined by Rory Scofhorn. Welcome to the show. And to kick us off, I mean, the SNP really do just go from strength to strength, don't they? Is, is that the big story of, of these results? It's certainly one of them. Um, it is really quite remarkable how long they've managed to hang on and not just hang on, but continue consolidating themselves. It's worth remembering that uh, 2017 was a kind of surge for the SNP. That was the last Scottish local results. But it came during a bit of a rough patch from that was also when uh, the Conservatives were having a bit of a surge in Scotland and Labour looked like they might be rebuilding a little bit under Jeremy Corbyn. So it was it was sort of a dip on the way as part of their surge. So this is them building back to maybe some of that initial momentum they had, but they've been bolstered obviously since 2017 by everything from Brexit to Partygate. So it is a remarkable result for them. And there's a bit of ground in some places they have made up elsewhere. And what is the Labour story then? They seem, you know, reasonably happy and it seems to be with good reason. They were looking irrelevant for a while in Scottish politics. They are, are now, at least in terms of, of council seats, the, the second most important force in the country. What's your take on, on how they achieved that? I think it's easy to overstate how, how well Labour have done and, and, and the leadership of the Scottish Labour Party are quite keen to do that, I think. They've done more than tread water. They've, they've gained 20 councillors and that is very impressive. They've also come extremely close to beating the SNP in Glasgow. I'm pretty sure there's one seat in it. They did that, as Sturgeon said, by throwing the kitchen sink at Glasgow. That has been a focus of the Scottish Labour Party for years. Um, they've been really focusing on the SNP's management. But they've uh, been able to do kind of what Starmer's been trying to do down south. Though. So Anna Sarwar, who came in to replace the left-winger Richard Leonard, has kind of given a bit of a shine to the party, I think. He's, he's depoliticised it a bit tried to make Scottish Labour all things to all people by really getting some theology out of the way. And he's attempted to make it a bit kind of friendlier and more optimistic. I think under Richard Leonard, there was a perception certainly in the Scottish press that this party was backwards looking. It was too focused on a kind of old fashioned leftism. So Sarwar has had a lot of help from the Scottish media in rebuilding the Scottish Labour Party as well. The key thing that's happened with Scottish Labour and, and the Scottish Conservatives, who've had a terrible day um, in, in terms of the results, is that the unionist bloc in Scottish politics has been reshuffled. This has been on the cards for a wee while, and certainly since the start of Partygate, Scottish Labour have returned to being the biggest unionist party in Scotland. Now, that's obviously a position they like to be in, but it's not necessarily a great thing for Keir Starmer, because you have to remember that Scottish local elections are single transferable vote. It's uh, a pretty thorough form of proportional representation, which doesn't really translate in first-past-the-post elections. That means that while Labour might be able to uh, take a bigger chunk of unionist voters, if the SNP can still hold on to the pretty much the full spectrum of the pro-independence vote at Westminster elections, it'll be very hard for Labour to win some of those first-past-the-post contests. So Labour have taken that first step, in their eyes, towards being the opposition again, and it's a problem for the SNP that the main opposition party is a centre-left party. Their ideal opposition is the Conservatives, because they can dominate not just the national question, but also left-wing voters. But now that the main unionist opposition is a centre-left party, it is a bit trickier for the SNP. Scottish Labour have still not worked out how to reach out to pro-independence voters. I don't think there's very much evidence from this election that they're winning many pro-independence voters. Those people are still pretty solidly in the SNP camp. 
the collapse of, of the Conservatives, let's just focus on that. I mean, it is pretty extraordinary. It's a huge number of, of, of councillors they've lost. Is that because people are staying at home or is that unionist voters switching to, to Labour or do, are there some people who switch from the Tories to the, to the SNP? It looks like there's probably a lot of people who have been voting Conservative, certainly under Ruth Davidson, who are switching back not just to Labour, but also the Liberal Democrats who've done extremely well. The Liberal Democrats have actually gained just as many councillors as Scottish Labour have, 20 councillors. And there could also be a case where Conservatives are staying home. It is a local election. Turnout is way down. But there is another really story here, which is the Scottish Greens have done incredible. They've had a record result. They're, I would say, the biggest winners of this election. They've gained 16 councillors. That's taken them up to 35 seats. And they've gained them all over the country. And they've gained quite a lot of first preference votes under a single transferable vote system, which is a big shift for them away from people's second choice after the SNP towards being some people's first choice. And they're, they're building a serious profile in some key constituencies now and starting to really compete in the big leagues of Scottish politics. We are going to move on to Wales. As in the rest of the country, the story in Wales is about the collapse of the Conservatives who lost about a third of their seats as well as control of the only council they had. We don't need to relitigate this. I think most of the audience is very aware that, you know, Mark Drakeford, leader of Welsh Labour, one of the most talented politicians in the country, Corbynite from the left of the party. They've just built a very distinctive brand away from the Westminster party. He, he wrote a speech talking about clear red water between Welsh Labour and, and the National Party in London. He wrote that speech 15, 20 years ago, and he now embodies it in his, in his leadership style. So positive. Uh, but again, if we're talking about, well, what are the implications in a general election? There's only only so many seats that Labour are going to be able to pick up in Wales. They do exist, but they're not going to deliver a government. It's a bit different in in Scotland. You know, uh, I think it's highly unlikely that Labour pick up huge numbers of seats, but it's certainly a more lucrative mine of, of, of constituencies for them where, you know, it's plausible that they could win 10, 15 seats maybe not in the next election, but in the foreseeable future. They had 41 seats there, I think, until 2015. You know, it's not that unimaginable. Whereas Wales is, is slightly different in terms of the Westminster calculus. But yes, Wales is, is very much a, um, a one-party state, and that's a good thing. Interesting as well, you know, we, we're looking at the success now of, of the SNP. I mean, it is phenomenal what they're achieving, Michael, to be gaining councillors while they have a majority, which is not meant to happen given the electoral system or Holyrood, while they have so many constituency MPs for Westminster, um, I think I've seen polling recently which suggests that will go up if there was a general election tomorrow. It's an extraordinary achievement by the SNP. You look at Sinn Féin, extraordinary achievement, both in the north and south of Ireland. Clyde, what, what's happening there? It seems quite stagnant, not really going anywhere politically, which is particularly interesting when you think of the appeal of, of, of Mark Drakeford in Wales, and when you think of the fact that actually polling for independence in Wales is at historic highs, you know, it's, it's nowhere near majority view, but regularly now we're seeing polling, which puts, you know, those in favor of independence, like 20, 25%. Historically, it's been way lower than that. So when you think about campaigns like Yes Cymru, when you think about actually how supportive Labour voters are of independence, particularly in the in the south of Wales, particularly around sort of, especially in Cardiff, that's what the polling would indicate, then I think Plaid Cymru have to ask themselves questions as to why they're not benefiting from this. 
You mentioned Sinn Féin there. Let's move on to Northern Ireland properly, because in elections to Stormont, Sinn Féin are set to be the largest party for the first time ever. Sinn Féin on 29%. The DUP have lost seven points. They're now seven percentage points. They're now on 21. And the other big winners um, were the Alliance parties. The Alliance Party, a party who who crossed the nationalist and unionist divides. Earlier today, I spoke to journalist Amanda Ferguson from The Count in Belfast. I asked her to explain the significance of Sinn Féin being the largest party. It's a major moment uh, in the in the political history of Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, Stormont was uh, created. The Northern Ireland state was created with an inbuilt unionist majority. So while on a practical level, it it won't make much difference to how unionists and nationalists share power in Northern Ireland, it's certainly a significant moment with regard to the fact that it's the first time an Irish Republican Party would hold the largest party status. And there are concerns that if Sinn Féin do come out as the the largest party, that the DUP will block forming a government because they don't want to see someone from the Republican side as the first minister of Northern Ireland. How, how likely are they to, to block the forming of a government? Well, certainly throughout this whole election campaign, which has been quite lacklustre, the DUP has refused to say uh, directly or to answer directly whether or not it would nominate uh, for the position of Deputy First Minister if Sinn Féin became the largest party. Uh, of course, the, the DUP leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, has indicated that his party won't uh, reform uh, power sharing until the government resolves the, the concerns it has around the Brexit protocol. So there's a couple of issues in play there. And I think that uh, because the parties have a period of six months uh, before the other election would have to be called, uh, we could find um, you know that we move into really uh, protracted negotiations. But certainly, power sharing is the only show in town. Whenever it comes to Northern Ireland, uh, you know that that's uh, what the Good Friday Agreement decided that there had to be mandatory power sharing. So, if unionists want to govern within Northern Ireland on a devolved basis. Stormont's what's on offer unless they would prefer direct rule from the UK government and certainly uh, unionists are impressed with the UK government at the moment and would view the the Conservative Party as having betrayed unionists uh, within Northern Ireland over the protocol. Could you talk a bit about what Sinn Féin campaigned on and what platform they ran on? We know they're currently polling as the highest party in the Republic of Ireland and that seems to be largely on economic issues, especially on on housing. Is that similar in in Northern Ireland, have they taken a sort of progressive left-wing economic position and put that front and centre, or are they campaigning on constitutional issues? They were campaigning um, on the cost of living crisis and on the health service waiting list and on delivering government for everyone in Northern Ireland. Nobody was talking about a border poll or referendum on Irish unity more than the Democratic Unionist Party were. Sinn Féin played that down in this election because they said that the, the, the focus should be on the Irish government to plan for unity at the moment and that you know there was no secret made of the fact that Sinn Féin was a Republican party. They said whenever they go to people's doors and someone opens the door they know that it's a Republican on the other side of the door but that it wasn't their focus and that was interpreted as perhaps because this is a proportional representation, uh, single transferable vote election that Sinn Féin was trying to appeal to that middle ground and was looking for lots of different transfers because transfers are really important uh, in this kind of election. Let's go to our next story. Labour's results in these local elections are fine and the party made important gains in London. Across the rest of England, there remain causes for concern. Outside London, the party has stood largely still, and despite being in the midst of the greatest fall in living standards since the 1950s and are having a Prime Minister almost universally believed to be a liar, there are few signs that Keir Starmer is in a position to win back the so-called Red Wall, which he believes to be so key to winning that next general election. 
And it's in this context that Starmer's allies have been out on television and radio trotting out excuses. This is Labour's National Campaign Coordinator, Shabana Mahmood, talking to Kay Burley. Yeah, but you're up against a Prime Minister who's a known liar who breaks the law. You should be doing better. Well, look, we've gone into these elections already holding more than 50% of the seats that were being contested. So I think it's important to remember the 2018 local election cycle because that's the last time these seats were fought in England. And we already hold more than 50% of these seats. So from that historic high, um, the, the, the headroom for very significant gains is obviously more severely limited. However, we have still made gains. Did you hear that? The reason gains were modest in these elections is that the seats being contested were last for in 2018, a year which was for Labour a historic high. Of course, you'll probably also remember Labour's leader for those elections was one Jeremy Corbyn. Which is why it was surprising that while Shabana McMood was making that argument on Sky, Laura Koonsberg said this on the BBC. One shadow cabinet minister said to me this morning, basically they still are suffering from long Corbyn a bit like long COVID. Now, you may not like that metaphor, but it's that sense that the party was so broken, in some people's view, that the recovery under Keir Starmer was always just going to take such a long time. Of course, his internal critics would say he may be competent, he's done some of the right things, but whether he'll ever have the dazzle to make the kind of impression and the kind of big strides forward to get them back to number 10 is still an open question. Mm. That's right. Labour's gains look modest because they're being compared to a historically high vote share achieved by Jeremy Corbyn. And at the same time, Labour gains are modest because voters still haven't forgotten the damage done by Jeremy Corbyn. Quite difficult to hold both of those positions in one's head at the same time, but the shadow cabinet are managing it. Aaron, um, I I want your comment on this sort of Schrodinger's Corbyn. We can't say these results were good because they were so good under Jeremy Corbyn, but also we didn't do as well as we would have done because people hate Jeremy Corbyn so much. Make it make sense for me. Well, this was from from Laura Koonsberg. Typical Laura Koonsberg journalism. This person said X, so I'll say it. Okay. Well, you know, this person could say that, you know, you're a sex offender. I mean, are you going to repeat it? Is that a sensible thing to do? No, of course it's not. It's a stupid thing to say. Is there any sort of evidence backing it up? Well, seemingly not given that in, in, in last year's local elections, Labour did far worse with Keir Starmer than anybody anticipated. That was clearly not because of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, they lost Hartlepool in a by-election, a seat that they won twice with Jeremy Corbyn as the Prime Minister. So, patently stupid thing to say. I think only Laura Koonsberg and, and the pundits in, in London would say it. And I think it does a complete disservice to voters who have a, a range of issues which they care about. And as I said at the top of the show, Michael, London mainstream media hates local elections precisely because it doesn't allow them to present themselves as the ones with the speed dial to the powerful. It means that the politicians who they have access to aren't the centre of the story and that upsets them. So they invariably try and make local political exercises, whether that's local elections or it could be elections in Scotland, Wales, etc. They invariably try and make that about what's going on in Westminster. They hate the idea of there being any other driving force in politics than the 650 people that sit down in Westminster and talk to them in their gentlemen's clubs and in their bars in Soho and the TV studios. So that's the first thing. And I think when you're in that sort of environment and you're Laura Koonsberg and, you know, if somebody says something to you on WhatsApp and they're a Labour backbencher or Peter Mandelson, you believe them because of who they are. Well, A, that's bad journalism. 
B, it tells us nothing about the reality of actually what's happening in local elections, which I think is so fascinating. When you look at the various parties, look at Rahman and Tower Hamlets, the Greens, the Lib Dems, the Tories winning in some places and, and losing, you know, terrifyingly, uh, in terrifyingly bad ways in other places. I think it's so much more complex and interesting. I think people like Laura Koonsberg, and I saw um, Mark Urban as well from BBC Newsnight tweet the same thing about Long Corbyn. I think they're showing themselves to be incurious, stupid commentators, and I think they're doing a disservice to their profession. Because the point of journalists is not to receive a WhatsApp message from a Labour backbencher. It's to go out there and to find out what's driving people and why they're voting. So yes, it's easy. Yes, it's convenient. And yes, the lobby loves talking about it. Long Corbyn has zero to do with what we've seen over the last 24 hours. And you focus on the, you know, the media element there, I think, which is very, very understandable, very good points. But it also raises a lot of questions about the Labour Party, right, and the shadow cabinet, because you're in a situation where the Conservative Party, you know, everyone thinks their leader is a liar. We're going into a situation where there is going to be the biggest drop in living standards since records began, so at least since the 1950s. And Labour frontbenchers, and even Keir Starmer, actually, the thing they are most keen to say is, oh, wasn't that 2019 general election very bad? You know, they're still obsessed with talking about Jeremy Corbyn. They're still obsessed with talking about the Labour Party. It's like, how about talk about the guy who you're actually supposed to be trying to beat in the next general election instead of talking about the guy who you, you know, who is no longer Labour leader and you actually kicked out of the party? Like, what is this obsession with talking about Jeremy Corbyn? I saw a tweet today, which I thought was very insightful, which said, you know, say what you want about Jeremy Corbyn. He never blamed Ed Miliband for everything that went on. It wasn't the case that two years into Corbyn's leadership in, in 2017, if there were some bad council elections, he would go on TV and all his shadow cabinet would go on TV and say, well, I think it's probably Ed Miliband's fault. But we had now two years, at least two years into Starmer's leadership, and you've still got him trotting out and saying, oh, the issue here is really Corbyn. You've got your shadow cabinet people going out and saying, oh, we didn't do very well because these, these seats were won by Corbyn four years ago. And also we didn't do very well this time because people can't forget about Corbyn. It just seems like, Get over yourselves. Like, look at the people you're supposed to be trying to beat and maybe think about the future instead of the past. Like, it, it does strike me as just being not only desperate, but also quite pathetic. I think that's entirely right, Michael. And I think, you know, I mentioned the media, but I think talking about Jeremy Corbyn, whether that's Jenny Chapman, who's like a, a, a Keir Starmer outrider, or whether that's just Labour MPs or Labour figures, Peter Mandelson briefing it or whatever, it shows they're not serious about actually winning. Nobody's talking or thinking about Jeremy Corbyn. Nobody, except people like Laura Koonsberg. But in the real world, nobody's thinking about that. People are thinking about, wow, you know, you had the, you had the Center for Economics and Business Research a month ago. Their estimate was that we would see the average person lose around a thousand pounds worth of purchasing power this year because of inflation and, and stagnant wages, i.e. wages don't keep up with rising prices. The OBR with the March spring statement, end of March, which is what, six weeks ago? <laughs> not that long ago, was basically predicting around £500 worth of purchasing power lost. So at the same time, the CEBR was saying it'd be about £1,000. Now, yesterday, the Bank of England basically tacitly said that it's going to be closer to £1,000 than £500. That £500 figure, by the way, is the one where people were saying, this is going to be you know, the worst, the biggest hit to real incomes in uh, 56 years or whatever it was, right? Well, actually, it looks like it may be twice as bad as that. That's what people are thinking about Laura Koonsberg. They're not thinking about, well, have Labour decisively dealt with the Corbyn legacy? Yeah, okay. Parts of the electorate, maybe like one in 50 people might be thinking about that, and most of them aren't Labour voters anyway. 
they're hobbyists, Michael. They view politics as some sort of interesting little hobby. And another thing that really fascinates me, but also sickens me, is they say, well, at this point in the electoral cycle, well, there should be this and this and this and this. Well, in the local elections in 2017, Labour did terribly. And then they did, you know, significantly better in the, in the general election in 2017 in, in May, where they saw, you know, the biggest increase in the share of the votes since 1945. The Tories got smashed in the 2019 local elections, and they won a massive majority that December. Like, this isn't your little hobby where you say, well, we know at this point in the electoral cycle. No, we don't. All the evidence indicates the complete opposite. And um, what data are you pulling on? Are you pulling on just Britain? Is it globally? Because I can tell you, in the United States, presidents tend to lose the midterms when it comes to elections for Congress. Nobody says, well, at this point in the electoral cycle, they just kind of take it as writ that actually the incumbent doesn't do very well after two years. So they just have these regurgitated platitudes and cliches which they live on. Meanwhile, tens of millions of people aren't really given the benefit of a, of a, of a healthy, informed public debate. Worst of all, Michael, at the center of this is a public service broadcaster called the BBC. The informed debate isn't going to come from the papers. You would at least hope it comes from, from the British Broadcasting Corporation. People like Laura Koonsberg, Mark Urban, they're, they're not part of the solution. They're part of the problem. It's actively misinforming the electorate when you start talking about these absurd media talking points rather than what's actually driving them, which we know what they are, cost of living, inflation, and a lack of trust in party politics generally, which I think is going to hurt all the major parties, not just the Tories. We'll see how that unfolds. As local election results flooded in, Durham police made an announcement. They would be investigating Keir Starmer for potential rule breaches when campaigning in local elections last year. The police force said this. Earlier this year, Durham Constabulary carried out an assessment as to whether COVID-19 regulations had been breached at a gathering in Durham City on April the 30th, 2021. At that time, it was concluded that no offence had been established and therefore no further action would be taken. Following the receipt of significant new information over recent days, Durham Constabulary has reviewed that position and now, following the conclusion of the pre-election period, we can confirm that an investigation into potential breaches of COVID-19 regulations relating to this gathering is now being conducted. Pretty big news there. This was how Emily Formbury responded to the development. Now, there's been a campaign um, from Conservative MPs in the run-up to this election and supported by a lot of Conservative supporting newspapers to get this investigation reopened, and it's been reopened. Are you annoyed by it? No, listen, we will answer any questions that the police have got for us, and, uh, and we're completely confident that no rules have been broken, so it's fine. When it says uh, receipt of significant new information of recent days, um, do you find that intriguing? Do you find that puzzling? I don't know what that is. So, uh, but, but, you know, we'll be there to answer any questions that they've got. So uh, you've no idea what that new information could be. And, and, and your view of the original meeting or gathering or whatever you want to call it um, hasn't changed, has it? Which is that no rules were broken. Absolutely not. We're no. absolutely confident that, that, uh, that there's nothing to answer here. Mm. The police investigated, there was nothing there and there is nothing there. Of course, whether or not Starmer broke the rules will hinge on whether his curry and beer could be considered reasonably necessary for work. From surveying social media, legal opinion appears to differ on that question. And in any case, Keir's beer is nowhere near as egregious as Boris Johnson's multiple parties. But the investigation does put Starmer in an awkward position. Not least because back in January, he said this. We already know that she's concluded 
that there's evidence of potential criminal offences. That's why she's passed it to the Metropolitan Police. So we know that much already. We already know that Metropolitan Police have decided that it's serious enough and flagrant enough for them to investigate. It's the worst possible outcome for the Prime Minister. And frankly, some of his cabinet now need to look themselves in the mirror and ask themselves why they're still supporting this Prime Minister. There's a Metropolitan Police investigation into the goings-on in Downing Street. And it's time that some of those cabinet members spoke out and said, we're not tolerating this any longer. That was Starmer suggesting the mere opening of a metropolitan police investigation into Boris Johnson should lead to his resignation. It sounds a little bit awkward now. And of course, Starmer's position will get even more difficult if he is actually fined. This is what he said last month when Johnson and Sunak received their fixed penalty notices. The guilty men are the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. They've dishonoured all of that sacrifice. They've dishonoured their office. This is the first time in the history of our country that a Prime Minister has been found to be in breach of the law. And then he lied repeatedly to the public about it. Britain deserves better. They have to go. Remember, Rishi Sunak was fined for just attending a meeting where Boris Johnson was presented with a birthday cake. It was against the law, but it's hardly any more egregious than a shared beer and curry during an election campaign. Aaron, how big a problem do you think this police investigation is for Keir Starmer? Understatement of the year, it's a big problem, Michael. His account is that this was a work event. They ordered a curry. This was eaten at around 10pm. They had a beer and then they went back to work. Hard to believe. And I think during this investigation, they're going to have to submit evidence of the fact that they, they did go back to work. And if they can show emails and some kind of documentation or evidence demonstrating that they were working after that time... Maybe they'll be okay. But it does seem strange on a Friday night at 10 p.m. after a curry and a beer, you then go back to work. I think many people find that a bit strange. However, there are whispers that it, it's worse It's worse than that. You know, I've, I've heard 11 p.m. Um, I've seen evidence from somebody that, you know, there was music, that there was a buffet. Now, this anybody can claim anything, and that's the point of the investigation. But it does mean that there are, there are questions to be asked. And even from what we know, with the the 10 p.m. curry, no music, if they didn't go back to work after having that meal and that beer, then I qualitatively don't see any difference between what Keir Starmer did and what Rishi Rishi Sunak did. I don't. And I know that's a deeply unpopular thing to say on Twitter for the Starmeristas, the Starmeroids, but that's just trying to be objective and fair and balanced. I don't think that Starmer did anything that Rishi Sunak did. And, And he's called on Rishi Sunak to resign. I think if Starmer had simply called on Boris Johnson to resign, he'd be on much firmer ground here. But the truth is, he demanded the resignation of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And from what I can see, best case scenario for him, he's as guilty. So I, I, I don't see how he's got a leg to stand on. In terms of him being retrospectively fined, that's not the policy of police in Durham. So it, it seems quite difficult that he will be fined. However, if he's not fined and then you know, people in Downing Street are fined, I think that's going to create a great deal of political tension. And I think the Tories will also use that to their advantage and say, look, we've been, we've been pilloried and treated unfairly and uh, Keir Starmer's been able to get away with it. So whether or not he's fined, I don't think really matters in terms of the broader politics. I think if he, if, if he is fined, which I don't think is going to happen, I think he would have to resign. Of course he would. But I, I think regardless of what happens, purely as a result of this investigation, 
there are major political consequences for him, in so much as it now nullifies this line of attack, which he's been pursuing for months. Um, and if he's found guilty to have broken the rules, I think, I think he's, he's discredited as a politician to an extraordinary extent. The attack line that they've had on, on, on Johnson for months is, he's a man of no integrity, he's not honest. If Starmer's found guilty of breaking the rules, that disintegrates. Labour could come out and say, look, we'll, we'll let the police do their investigation. Actually, I kind of just, I, I think he could get a fixed penalty notice because you've got to remember the Metropolitan Police, their original position was we don't investigate sort of retrospective rule breaches. Then they changed their mind because they said, well, actually, when there's a case which is undermining people's confidence in the rule of law, we'll reopen it. I imagine Durham can use exactly the same logic when there is a case which um, we feel like it could undermine sort of faith in, in the rule of law, we will reopen it. And I think if they're opening an investigation, they won't have already presumed they won't be issuing, issuing the fine. Otherwise, why bother reopening it? But I think as w- what's so difficult about this is Labour could come out and say, look, whether or not he broke the rules, obviously he will be incredibly sorry if he, he did and he'll be very frank and open about this. What Keir Starmer did, every, every reasonable person sort of looking at what has taken place can assess that what Keir Starmer did, you know, even if it was wrong, and he'll be very sorry for that. It's a different kettle of fish. It's completely different to what Boris Johnson did, which was repeated, repeated, repeated rule breaches, often with, you know, up to 100 people invited to a party. These were not accidental breaches. These were, well, it might be accidental, but they weren't incidental. They were systematic. Different times, girls, well, we talked about this before. Some of those rule breaches in Downing Street were in that first lockdown when there really was a different atmosphere, a different feeling, and a different approach to people who broke the laws. Those posters when it said, have you bent the rules? You know, essentially the implication was, have you bent the rules? You might have killed someone. That was when they were bending the rules in Downing Street. So I think that there are a lot of things that Labour could come out to say, to say what Keir Starmer has done is completely different to what Boris Johnson has done. The problem is precisely what were in those clips which I showed you, which is Keir Starmer saying the mere fact of the police in, uh, opening an investigation is incredibly damning for Boris Johnson and should, should lead to his resignation and should lead to Conservative MPs to step up and, and get rid of him. And then saying about Rishi Sunak, the mere fact of the police issuing a fine, even though in the case of Rishi Sunak, which is turning up to a meeting where there was a cake, you know, it, it's not particularly egregious. He said that mere fact should lead to his resignation. So it's going to be very, very difficult for Keir Starmer to, to not do the same. And there have already been pretty awkward conversations and interviews today. I'm Yvette Cooper. I heard uh, interviewed on The World at One. I actually didn't think the, the host pushed as, as, as much as he could have done. But he was basically saying, you know, if, if Keir Starmer is fined, should he resign? And she said, we don't think he will be fined because we don't think he broke the rules. Now, the host could have pushed there and said, well, you've been asking these hypothetical questions of the Conservatives all the time. If, if Boris Johnson is fined, will he, he resign? And now we're asking you these questions about yourselves and you're refusing to answer. I suppose, finally, the one other response that Keir Starmer has had is, look, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Why are we talking about this tittle-tattle? And <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't work when he's repeatedly stood up in Prime Minister's question and called for Boris Johnson and Rishi Sudak to resign because of fines. You can't then suddenly change the rules and say, actually, I'm only interested in substantive policy. Yeah. Which is why, mm. as I say, his, his rule breach is not the same as Boris Johnson's, but due to how he has approached Partygate, he is undeniably in a very difficult situation right now. Totally, Michael. And I, I just want to reiterate, I'm in no way comparing what he's done to Boris Johnson. I think, I think, I think the analogy to Rishi Sunak is, is probably quite fair. But I think, broadly speaking, what happened in Downing Street is extraordinary. And I, I don't see how only Allegra Stratton is the only person that's been punished for it. I find that just unthinkable. I, I don't know how they've gotten away with that. But the problem for Starmer is, and it's embodied in those video clips you, you shared earlier, is that he has tried to present himself as a moral crusader, somebody who is 
You know, I'm the former director of public prosecutions. I'm incredibly ethical and moral. In complete counterpoint and contrast, the prime minister, Boris Johnson has never claimed to be an honest, good man, right? So, of course, this is terrible for his political brand because of COVID and the, the sacrifice that everybody made, and, and he didn't adhere to it. But I don't think anybody's particularly surprised. I think they're shocked at the extent of it. But if you well, Boris Johnson broke the rules when it came to the lockdown, people go, yeah, I, I really could see that coming. But when you're trying to construct this kind of brand of Keir Starmer as the lawman, as the barrister, as the ethical conscience of the public against this deviant Tory who is just a rule breaker and is shameless, that loses that lose, loses its edge. For me, it's a bit like, say, Jer- Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is saying, I'm a socialist and I, I uh, believe in redistribution. And then you find out he wears Armani suits, drives a Ferrari and has a £10,000 watch. People would say, well, this guy's not very credible. He's making excellent points about policy, but he clearly doesn't live up to the things that he expects of others. He's pontificating. He's two-faced. He's hypocritical. That's the exact problem now facing Kistama. I'm interested to see how they, how they get out of this one. Let's go to a couple of comments, a few more super chats in there. Jonathan Dawson with 20 euros. The Labour right is so disgruntled by the fact that there was actually a leader with a vision, they can't get over the way it exposes them as a passionless political syndicate. Super interesting. I mean, it, it is remarkable how they can't talk about anything other than Starmer's predecessor. Like, I, I kind of have, have never seen anything like it in, in UK politics. Who was the Labour leader in the Tory le- or the Tory leader who spoke about their predecessor this much? I just, it's phenomenal. Aaron, pleasure to be joined by you this evening. Michael, my pleasure. Hugely interesting set of results. And by the way, one more thing, Michael, we didn't say it. The Greens picked up two councillors in, uh, in Newham. So, you know, L- London is a progressive, left-wing, arguably even eco-socialist city. A bit more complicated than just saying, oh, they're voting Labour. Um, I do want one more thing from you, actually, Aaron. Um, your interview with Oliver Eagleton is going out on Sunday. Tell us about it. Tell us why people should tune in. Uh, so Oliver Eagleton, for those who aren't aware, wrote a biography, has written a biography of Keir Starmer, The Starmer Project. And it is an extraordinary book. I'd recommend people read it. It's available from Verso. Go to the Verso website. And it chronicles Keir Starmer's life as a young man, as a lawyer, as a director of public prosecutions, head of the Crown Prosecution Service, as a politician, as party leader. The first 60 pages chronicle his, his legal career prior to entering politics in 2015. And I have to say, I said this to Oliver, it's among the most interesting political biography I've, I've read of anyone. And he really is responsible for some, for some terrible things, from, from Gary McKinnon to the CPS's position, I think, on on the phone hacking scandal. So much happened under his watch. John de Menezes and, and, and whether or not that case was reviewed. Ian Tomlinson case. So great book. If you're time poor, 60 pages doesn't take very long, but it's only 200 pages anyway. But if you haven't even got the time to read 60 pages, watch the interview on Sunday. You'll learn a lot. And um, even for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic of Keir Starmer, I'm, I'm critical of him as a politician. You can't but help lose respect for him as a person. I think once you're familiar with his, his legal career, particularly after he became Director of Public Prosecutions. We will be back on Monday at 7pm as ever. Thanks for watching this evening. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.